You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program will be podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscano. We're doing another one of those disjointed interviews. Can't have people in the studio anymore. Uh, this is the last day I'm allowed into the studio. I haven't actually had a guest into the studio since the late February, but we battle on, and if there are any technical issues... Just forget about it. 3CR is still broadcasting 365 days a year, 366 days in a leap year, which is a wonderful effort. And considering all the support we received during the month of June, during the uh, appeal month, it's great to know that we'll be on air for another year. Now, we've got a very, very special little guest today. Hello, little chili. Hello, Joe. How are you going, mate? Good, good, mate. Whoa, whoa, mate. I like that. You're one of us, are you? You're a well, dinky, you're a dinky die Aussie. Well, Joe, I spent three years living in far north Queensland, so I think I earned my citizenship here. All right, <laughs> all right. If you spent three years living in far north Queensland, I'm going to test you. If you went to the pub and you yep. asked for a yellow, a bluey, or a greeny, do you know what that means? Well, that would have made things about 10 years ago, but I was a bartender, and 4X is not the beer anymore. No. <laughs> Very good. Excellent. So now, these days, in modern Australia, it's about if you're a 4X or if you're a Great Northern up yeah. there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was up there year, decades ago before you were born, you'd go in and you <laughs> ask for a bluey, a yellowy, or a greeny. That was it. Didn't even. What was the What was the greeny? Educate me. I don't know. It was beer. We had a beer that was in a green can. I've forgotten what it was. <laughs> but oh, uh, it was before your time. I'm talking about the 70s, the 1970s. I assume. So, oh, so, yeah, I was born in the 80s, so yeah, right. I wasn't there for that one. No. So look, look, just to put out, look, what we do in this program is we just talk to an interesting person, and if you're not interesting, we'll make you interesting. That's the way it goes. But <laughs> interesting. Right, I'm per- going to make you work hard then. Yeah, I'll make you work hard. Thank you. Uh, I'm used to working hard. You know, I'm an old man. I'm used to working hard. Now, just to orientate our listeners, what year were you born? I was born in 1981. 81. So you've, you've been around a while. You're pretty a old person. Bit. I'm, about, I'm about to get into the four decades mark yeah, next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was born in 51. Oh, same year as my dad. We got 30 years of difference. You could be my daughter. Ooh, what a, what a thought. Look at that. I'll be a terrible daughter. I'm sure you'll be a great dad. No, no, no. I was a terrible dad. I've, you know, all fathers are bad. You've you got to understand that. That's the way it is. When kids <laughs> go through their teenage years, then maybe later on they understand. But no, that's the way it goes. Now, what's the first thing you remember about being on planet Earth as a little child? What's the first thing you remember? Funny enough, my first memory is my baptism. Right. Tell us about, about it. I was about one year old. And I was like five years old when I told my dad this, and everyone was quite um, 
amazed apparently that I had that memory. Uh-huh. But I got the memory of looking up and see the face of this bearded white man uh-huh. and a lot of people around me and, and then getting wet in the head. <laughs> and then I was uh, later on told that that was my baptism and that the preacher that had baptized me was uh, a gringo, was an American person. Right. And he was blonde. And, but that's my first memory inside the church. That's terrible, isn't it? No, not really. <laughs> no, 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 but, no. That's, uh, it's better than being outside the church, I assume. But uh, that was your first memory, looking up at a yes. gringo and getting him well, throwing water on your forehead. Pretty much. Like, I'm the daughter of a preacher. Uh, yeah, all oh, right. My, yeah, I grew up in church. I do not believe in God at this time in my life, but no, um, no. quite familiar with the institution of church. I didn't skip a single Sunday of church for 25 years. Now, let's get back a few steps. So what country yep. were you born in? I'm born in Chile. In Chile. What part of Chile? I'm born in Santiago, the Santiago. main capital city. Right. So you said your father was a preacher, was he? Or Co- Correct. And what does that mean? As a child, how, how did that affect you? Well, it meant that... Uh, Sunday was church every time. We had to get up early and we had to dress the best clothes that we had to go to church. And that was, uh, you couldn't cancel it. As I said, I spent 25 years of my life. The only time my mom cut me slack to not go to the temple on Sunday was because I had a tonsillitis that landed me on hospital. Mm-hmm. The only time that was, you know, exempted for going to church. But that also means that uh, religion was really present from the get-go. And that, um, you know, our moral compass was what the Bible decided that it was. And it also implied that my dad and my mom have a really active life within the church and that the church most of the times came, came first for them rather than the household. Right. Just, just interesting, you used the word temple, so you weren't of the Roman Catholic faith then? No, I wasn't the Roman Catholic. My dad was an Anglican. Right. He was actually yes. an Anglican minister? Uh, yeah, he was a like preacher. So basically, he was never paid by church. Right. He was never employed by church. But he was in charge of giving the sermons every Sunday because he was a really good speaker. Mm-hmm. And he was a theologist. And um, he studied actually here in Australia in the Moore College. He was a conservative theologist back in the day. And he was a really good speaker speaker, as I, as I tell you. So he was the guy that gave the sermons, and he was a psychologist, a, a pastoral psychologist. So he was the one who received the people in, uh, that they were having issues, and he would just like, coach them and treat them, you know, from a mm. religious psychologist perspective or something. So but that, he was never employed by the church. Never employed. So it was cheap labor. So he did all the work for no money. For no money. It's strange. You don't think of South Americans being Anglicans. Yeah, it's not. There's not many, and in Chile, it's um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting church. It's a uh, basically most of the British Council up there yep. belongs to the Anglican Church, and um, all the people that goes to the Grange School, which is the school of the British expats that they live up there, and it's a church that has a lot of money that is very linked to um, the banks and the foreign investment that comes from England and America. Mm. So you would say that it's um, liberal in the economic side type Mm. of church. As I told you, there's not many Catholic, Roman Catholic, it's the main religion in Chile. Right. Now, now going back, uh, your mum, are your parents, tell us about your mum, what was she like as a mother? Uh, Mum was, um, mum is a very successful architect for the Air Force. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. Come up with a very conservative place, man. Preacher on one side, military on the other side. So my mum specializes in designing airports. She's an architect, mm-hmm. and um, she's also a professional opera singer. So I professional. Come from she actually makes money out of it. Yes, my mum sings in a in a choir. Mm-hmm. She's been singing in that choir for the last thirty five years. A choir that my grandmother directs for the last fifty years. Um, and yeah, they play, basically they go on tour and every Sunday they play and they have rehearsals three times a week that they get paid for going to. So my mom has two jobs, effectively. She works mm. for the military and she also sings. And she's still, uh, your parents both alive? Yeah, both alive and both still together. They're about to go into the 55-year mark. They've been together since they're 14 years old. Right. They're like mid-school sweethearts. 
What, they met it through the church or school, you said? No, they, they, they met in school when they were about 14 years old, and mm. they've been inseparable from then. They got married when they were 18, mm. 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And as I tell you, they're still together, and they're born in the same year as you are. Right. So you can make the math. Oh, they're great people, obviously. Um, they're pretty good, yeah. Um, have you got any brothers and sisters? I do. I have two little ones. Mm-hmm. One is eight years un- younger than me, and my sister is 14 years younger than me. Right. And the three of us are very gay. What do you mean you're gay? You're happy people. No, we're all queer. <laughs> you're all queer. We're you're all happy queer. queer. You're happy queer. We're you're not, you're not unhappy queer. We're all, we're all very happy and we're all very queer, the three of us. Yeah, well, that's and, great. Um, yeah, and that's been the great surprise for my mum and dad, you know, having a big, um, big, coming from a very conservative space, the three kids that they have, they mm. all came out activists, queers and weirdos, really. Well, that's what happens, you know. You're always diametrically opposed to your parents. I've got radical friends whose children are accountants and police officers and I just don't know where they went wrong. But that's the oh way it God. goes, you know, it's rebellion. <laughs> it's funny, hey, because my dad took a little bit too. When I told that I was gay, he didn't take it that great. He was right in the middle of the church. Right. Thing. Took him a couple of years of studying and really deeply thinking. He's a very intellectual guy. We're deeply thinking about ethics and all of that. And when he called me back, he was like, okay, cool. So I've studied all the Bibles and I realized that, A, there is nothing that says that it's bad to be gay, at least at least not comparable to any other things like wearing two different fabrics in your clothing, you know? Yes. Um, so, it's like, so the Bible doesn't say anything. On top of that, I know that you are not a delinquent, that you uh, don't do drugs and all of that stuff, and also you did not become a lawyer or police officer, so I think I'm okay with this. <laughs> yeah, it's got a sense of humor too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and look, my dad quit church after, um, after a little bit, after I moved out to Australia, I think a couple of years after. Um, and yeah. ended up church because he decided that he was a homophobic and misogynist institution that he thought he could change from within, but mm. then realized that he couldn't, that he was missing time from his homosexual and awesome children to spend time with homophobes and misogynists. He just right. quit. Mm. And now he mm. hangs out with us a lot more. Well, let's go back a few steps. We've got plenty of time. Did okay. you go to primary school in uh, in Santiago? Primary school, secondary school, and university. I moved down here when I was twenty-five. So, what what was it? What was primary school like in the eighties or early nineties right. for a, a young Chilean girl? So, Chile was in the dictatorship, the last years of the of the Pinochet dictatorship. I was in a school. My family was right wing at that time, um, and I was in a school where all my classmates were sons of military or police force. Um, it was a very strict school where every Monday we have to do this formation thing. The school was called United States Academy, and it was a really conservative school. And every Monday we had to do this formation. So every level from year one up to year 12 will have to um, stand up from the shortest to the tallest one. Mm-hmm. And we will have our uniforms review after, of course, we sang the national anthem, the United States anthem, and the military anthem in Chile. Um, then we were inspected, as in, like they would turn around the cuff of of your of your shirt to see if it was dirty. They would measure the length of your hair, if the ponytail was in the right position, if your socks were long enough, if your skirt was long enough or too short, and if in any of these things you didn't measure up to the standard, they will take you because oh, they make the parents look at this every Monday. Parents mm-hmm. have to look at this. And they will pick you up and return you back to your parents and not let you be in the school if you fail any of this inspection thing. Um, so there will be this public embarrassment thing of being taken back to your parents. So your parents take you back home and put you back to standard to participate in the school activities. It was a very brutal space. Um, we got uh, the, the director of the school used to walk around in recess. He used to walk around in the in the backyard, and if you were doing something wrong, you get a smack with a big wooden ruler. Um, it was a strict school. I, the only thing that I appreciate out of that school is that they show me what things I don't like about discipline. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I appreciate that it put the seeds of speaking English because it was a school that, different to other schools in Chile, had a big emphasis of learning English. So I was there for my four spare years, and then democracy returned, and I got moved into an artistic school where most of my classmates were sons and daughters of people who had been exiled during the dictatorship. Right. And then returned. To, so I went from a far right wing school my first four years, and then the rest of my education I did it in an artistic. When, left-wing when you school. talk about a far right wing school, I don't think most Australians would understand. You're talking about uh, obviously indoctrination. Was it was it not just in terms of discipline, but in terms of ideas? What type of ideas were they trying to indoctrinate in you as a child? Well, Pinochet's dictatorship is famous for the uh, neoliberal model being imposed as a national as a national system of economics. So, basically, 1982. 1982, Chile became the most capitalist economy in the world. And after that, neoliberal policies had been imposed. So basically, that's what it was drifted onto us. So very conservative, um, very conservative moral views, mm-hmm. very strong um, religion-based morality, and also a class system. And... And the private property as the center base of everything, basically. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that money talks, time is money, and that, um, that I don't know how to tell you, it was very capitalist. It's more than capitalism, it's neoliberalism idea. Yeah, it's more than capitalism. The market is the yeah. central thing. But it did, they, did, they did try to implant those ideas into your... Oh, absolutely. Like, I got the memory, like, when, when I was in year mm-hmm. four... Mm-hmm. Um, there was this big campaign because uh, Pinochet had agreed to hold the plebiscite to determine that he was going to stay in power or maybe give way to democracy. Mm. So during that plebiscite, there was a political campaign. It was the only political campaign we had in, during 30 years of dictatorship. Um, and there was an option yes and an option no. The option yes was yes, we vote for the dictator to stay there. And option no was like, no, we actually want democracy. And when that campaign was happening, I was at school. And every time that the yes faction would do something, and they did a lot, like they, I remember they flying planes over the city and dropping these little parachutes with the yes on top of it printed mm. and lollies at the bottom of it. And right. they used all the military equipment to do the campaign. Mm. So we were allowed to go out and pick up the materials from the yes uh, campaign. Also, or the murals in school were full of, um, you know, oaths and, 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 and louding and, and, and um, praises to the dictator. Mm-hmm. And basically, we were taught that everything that the dictator did was fantastic and amazing and for the good of the country because we were being safe from communism. Mm-hmm. See, you know, most of what neoliberalism teaches you is not so much what neoliberalism is, but what you're supposed to hate. And the religion of anti-communism, I guess, is the most the most clear way to put it. So everything that it was communitarian, mm. it was looked down on, and everything that it was private or individual was good. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. So you said you moved from a, a, a neoliberal school, a neoliberal focused, which was basically for a military personnel's children, and then you moved into this artistic school where uh, you met uh, the children of exiles and people who'd been murdered. Uh, what was that transition like for you? It was weird. I was nine years old. Um, my first thing was like I passed from a school that it was really uh, regimented, full of rules, that we had to wear a uniform, that, as I told you, were inspected and there was a lot of discipline and control and everything to a school that I could attend to with normal clothes that the teachers, I could call them uncle and auntie, that I was encouraged to speak in school without lifting my, raising my hand, but to have dialogues um, that, you know, told us that we were supposed to discuss to reach agreement and that meaning was something that we conveyed. It was a, um, I'm not sure if we can say these words, it was a bit of a 
mind blow. I think it's better than headphones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. mind blow. It's mind blowing for you. Yeah. yeah, as a as a nine year old kid. Also, it was the first in my first week of uh, I I learned words to talk about politics. My two first questions when I was in that school was, what does politics mean? And what does communism mean in socialism? Because I keep hearing those words. Mm-hmm. And those words were not allowed in my other school. I never heard them before. So my classmate, it was a really funny thing, because I did not come from a high socioeconomical background. And most of my classmates in this school did come from a higher socioeconomical background. So I remember being sitting in my classmate's house, which was a big house with a swimming pool and two nannies. Um, and he was explaining me, as a 10-year-old kid, to a 9-year-old kid, uh, what communism meant. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me that it was about everyone making the same for the jobs that we did and everyone having the access to the same quality of living. And I remember listening to what he was saying and at the same time wondering if that meant that we were all going to have two nannies and have a swimming pool like he did. You know? (laughs) How did you find yourself in this school? Did your parents... I mean, it seems extraordinary. How did did things change so radically for you overnight? Well, mate, this this is what happened when you're in a fascist dictatorship and people who think different are punished. It means that during that time, people who think different pretend not to think differently because it's a matter of survival. Mm. So during Pinochet dictatorship, everyone that had lefty ideas or lefty associations was persecuted, harassed, uh, detained, tortured, killed, or exiled. So anyone that had lefty views and it wasn't really that militant or that activist at that time, very quickly by seeing what was going on with the left, meaning that torture, get this kill, disappear, etc., they retreated and they pretended to be right-wing in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And that was basically the deal that it was happening in my family. So my family was right-wing, as I tell you, but during the development of the dictatorship, the views change because, you know, one thing is to have right-wing views and another thing is to justify human rights violations and killings and genocide and persecution. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So they changed their political views, but they could not change their lifestyle because they had to keep pretending that they were right-wings. Mm. Otherwise, they would become a target for the right-wingers. Right. Therefore, and especially having children, I was the only child in my house at that time, Children were a liability because everything that you spoke within closed doors, children would go and repeat outside. And to be fair, I was uh, a bit of a little prodigy and I learned how to read and write when I was about three. So no kindergarten wanted to have me. And they said that I needed to be in school by the age of five. Right. And the only school that would take me at that age was this school from a friend of a friend, that it was this very conservative school. So there we go, that's where I was. That's right. And as soon as democracy returned, my dad was able to basically come out of the closet and pack his children and put them in a school mm-hmm. that was reflecting of his ideas. His ideas. Because yeah. those ideas were not being persecuted anymore. Mm. When did you first realise about the atrocities which were uh, carried out by the... Uh, Pinochet United States government? That's, um, that's an interesting question. Like, I witnessed the atrocities when I was a kid, but I couldn't make sense of them because it was all very hush-hush-hush and quiet. And, you know, with children, they tried to keep them, they tried to keep them um, away from the horrors. And also the horrors were not public, public information. Like, I do remember my dad sitting down at 3 o'clock in the morning listening to the, to the pirate radios to be, that coming from broadcasting from outside of the country to learn the news of what actually was happening. Because, you know, Pinochet dictatorship was um, a very coveted mm. um, dictatorship. I think, like, the horrors were not, like, in other parts of South America that the militaries would go out and kill people in plain sight outside that they were protesting. In Chile, they would let the protests happen, and then overnight they would go and pick up the leaders and the people who were involved, and they picked them up in the middle of the night uh, where no one was looking, and then they would make them disappear. So in in that case, like, we were, as a child, I was aware that there was something, that there were bad things happening, because 
Basically, my memories before the democracy are all in black and white. Life was really boring for a kid, mm-hmm. you know? But when I became really aware of what was going on was when I changed school and I start hearing, you know, the experiences of my classmates because my classmates have been with parents that they've been tortured, exiled, killed, you know, persecuted. So that was something that those lived experience was something that had affected affected them. I had a whole bunch of my classmates as well that they were born in other countries and then have returned to Chile mm-hmm. um, because of the democracy return. Most of the exiled people decided to come back and raise their children in Chile. And that means that I also have the experience of them. But my experience of that was also coming through children because adults would not talk to children about this and they tell you would not mention it. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question right, mate. No, look, look whatever, whatever your answer is, the right answer on this program, we don't um, corral you but, yeah. into one position or another. So how old were you when you um, finished high school? No, I was 17 when I finished high school. 17. I just want to ask you some background information about your family. Were, were you back family descendants from uh, migrants or uh, indigenous or a combination oh. of both? Well, um, like every colony in every world, we're a mix of all of that. Right, right. But I am a third-generation immigrant. I seem like I'm very proud of that. Um, my grandfather escaped, uh, escaped the Hitler regime, mm-hmm. um, World War II. He ran away from Poland, from Danzig, actually, to Buenos Aires, Argentina. And from there, my dad, my dad was born there, and my dad migrated from Argentina to Chile, and I migrated from Chile to Australia. Right. So I'm proud to say I'm a third-generation migrant. My heritage mix, like most people in South America, it's a mix of um, European, mostly Spanish. But like everyone in South America, I got my fair share of indigenous blood that is not disclosed in the family and no one talks about it. Right. It's still something that people don't talk about in Chile. Oh, it's huge. Like, um, colonization, it's a brutal beast. And we have 500 years of it. Mm. And during all the time of my education, actually, it wasn't until like 10 years ago that we stopped celebrating the 12th of October as Christopher Columbus Day. Day. We started calling in the Day of the Indigenous Cultures. But all my education, Mm. I've been taught that anything that is European or it's white, or it comes from outside of us, it's better than what we produce. Mm-hmm. And we had a terrible disdain for indigenous people, very similar to what happens here in Australia. That's right. We used to call it the stain. A lot of the families stain. had the stain. It was called, you know, the stain. You know, you wouldn't mix with this family, although they may have been successful merchants because they had the stain, which means they had some indigenous heritage in their uh, background. And it wasn't until the... 70s or 80s that um, you know people stopped talking in those terms in this country so we've got a similar experience so when you went to university what university did you go to and what did you study my first attempt was um, I, I managed to get accepted in University of Chile which is the best university up there I don't know how that happened but I managed oh you're and a prodigy I, you told me you could read and write <laughs> it's free obviously yeah. they were looking for you you know, but that's when I was a kid, I was a prodigy. But then when I hit high school, I was, you know, that person. You're a rebel. You're a rebel. Ever. You're still a prodigy. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit of a rebel, mate. But yeah, I managed to get into the study union. I did a semester of um, Hispanic literature, but then I decided to not go in because I was very allergic to tear gas, and that faculty was uh, constantly gassed by the cops. Right. And um, so... And also my mom was pushing me really hard. No one wanted me to study literature because they, they said I was into linguistics, actually, but that was the program I needed to go. Mm-hmm. I wanted to study linguistics. But all my family was like, what are you doing? What the hell does a linguistic does? You're never going to make a single dollar. This is not where we send you to university. This is a third world country. Yeah, they sound like normal that... parents to me. You know? You've got to do something exactly. that's useful. You know. That's right. And I caved in, mate, and I changed. From, you know, the best university to study linguistics to just an average private university to become a journalist. A journalist. Yes. And this is a funny anecdote. By the time that I finished journalism, um, journalism was the worst paid out of all the professions in the in the social area. And linguistic, until today, is the best paid profession. Right. 
out of all of those because they work with um, robotics and like mm. it, it, artificial intelligence and voice recognition software. Yeah. But I reckon, I reckon um, the fact that you changed uh, courses is our gain as a country because I think if you'd done linguistics, you would have had a career in Chile and you wouldn't have left. No, I think that I would have to leave anyway. But um, look, I don't regret any of the steps that I had before getting into journalism. I wasn't actually into politics. I went into journalism thinking that I was going to be a fine arts journalist. My right. thing was music. Uh, you're going to do reviews of... Uh, yeah, my music. My thing was music and arts and mm. theatre and mm. cinema and all of that. I was into that. I was a very artistic kid. Um, but then in 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 university, I I ran into politics, and that was a big change. So what that happened? Kind of a, oh, I. I, I don't know what happened. Like I was, I was very into doing this art stuff, and then realized that when I was reporting that art didn't change the world, and that the world that I was starting to face was a world that it was increasingly unfair, mm. and that I didn't like it, and that, that the people like me were not really as poor as I was growing up and getting out of the bubble and getting inserted in society. I started realizing that I live in a society that it was highly exclusive, mm. that liked to exclude all the different peoples. And, you know, me being an artist, I was a very weird kid and most of my friends were very weird and started realizing that my weirdness and their weirdness did not fit. So I started getting into this politics as, you know, politics not as we understand it as large as, you know, or how to develop the, or how to give the most amount of good to the most amount of people. But politics as a hardcore politics, as it's like what is the distribution of power yes. and the fight for power in the apparatus of the state. Mm. So I got into that and I got an internship. Um, when I was about to finish, I got an internship that got me really into it, which was to be a media analyst for the communications team of the president itself. Mm-hmm. And that was... That was a great experience, as in, like, I was very cemented in terms of, like, it was politics where you needed the arena that you needed to create change. I was already very convinced that it wasn't education, it wasn't the arts, that you really wanted to change something, you needed to get into politics. And I was very convinced at that point that, you know, journalists and all of us are someone who exposed power, who allowed people to take decisions based on real information, and therefore we are... Uh, a cornerstone of democracy, and that was my head, you know. And I got hired by the president to fight the press, to <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> get away with his agenda. And you know, it's a very naive student. He was a socialist president at the time. Yes, I was like, yeah, I'm doing the right thing because you know the media in this country is right wing, and I'm mm. helping you know the left wing to yes. be able to you know mm. further the agenda and extend. You know, the rights of the citizens. I was so wrong, mate. I helped that guy privatize the 60% of the country and put it in his own pocket. Right. Now, what was that? Let's, let's name the president. It was Ricardo Lagos, actually, the most, one of the most popular presidents that we have had. Yes. Um, but it was... He was in power from 2000 until 2006. Um, he was a very authoritarian president, um, and he was very smart in terms of communication. He was the first guy that, uh, similar to Tony Abbott here, put up a big communications team. He understood that the battle was fought on the telly. And, yeah. and it was all about image. Yeah. And unfortunately, I was part of the team that helped him build that image where he pretended that he was, you know, giving really good things to the citizenship when actually he was just privatizing the entire thing. Right. So what... what moment did you think oh this isn't right what moment was uh, it at the end of the internship a, or during the internship uh, it was it was during the internship because i was still going to uni and i was working at university with a group of um uh, investigative journalists and we were working on this case it was a, it, it was these two big cases that they were happening at the moment in chile and it was a very interesting time of um of politics actually there was this big case about um it was the case Mobgate was the name, and it was about the government that has been a socialist government has been filtering money out through the Ministry of Public Construction to finance their campaigns. That was one of the scandals. Mm-hmm. So I was working with the government, trying to defend the government in that case that has been attacked by the right-wing media. And on the other hand, there was this big case of pedophilia that blew up that, was, uh, that had the head of the of the Senate 
that it was the right wing, the head of the right wing, the most conservative one-way party, was being accused by several children to have been abused by him. And there was all of this network of pedophilia that has been discovered in a very gruesome case made where a child, an eight-year-old kid, had been had rocked up naked and high on cocaine mm-hmm. into a police station saying, you got to help us, they're raping us. And police walked into a party and found 20 old men, rich men, very famous, having a party with little poor children mm. with cocaine, guns, and videos of all of these parties. And from there, this big scandal about a pedophilia ring amongst the rich and famous and the right-wingers in Chile um, was burning at the same time. So I was working on that pedophilia case as a journalist within my university, and I was working in this other case against the government, defending the government against corruption, mm. on the other hand. So I was with these two things. It was a very highly stressful time of my life, mate. I was 23 years old. And um, it, I was trying to make sense of all of this stuff. When one day I had to witness a meeting in between... Okay, let me say something before. This was really a pivotal time because basically you had all the right wing and all the left wing, basically all the political system, question on moral grounds that they were terrible. Mm. So fraud to the state on one side and pedophilia on the other side. So it was almost, almost we were about to go into anarchy. You know what I mean? Yep. Because if this fell through, there was no one, there was no leaders. There was no one to turn to. There's not a third option. There wasn't even a Greens party to look up, you know? Mm-hmm. It was just that. And no one knows what's going on. At the same time, all journalists were going like, yeah, we got power in, you know, checkmate at the moment. Maybe we'll be able to change the corrupted politicians for something better. And it was a very heightened moment. And I was looking at this. Well, at the same time, I witnessed with my own eyes the evidence in both cases that they were both very real. Um, and I sat down and chat with a lot of these children as well. And well, at the same time, I was sitting down and having lunch with the people that they were accusing. Mm. It was a um, very terrible time of my life, very complicated to negotiate, mm. um, especially when I witnessed with my own eyes a, a meeting between the president and the head of the right-wingers having a meeting finally and basically negotiate an out in the cancellation of both cases and mm. both of them disappearing of the media in the next two right. days. And right. everyone that was implicated as a whistleblower or as a witness ended up in jail. Mm. So having seen that at 23 years old was like my clear indication that if I had any hope that I could change my country at that time from whatever position I was holding, it just went to the bin. I was like, the corruption here is too big. And it was a corruption that it wasn't just in terms of politics. Maybe. The whole thing about pedophilia and touching children is the thing that touches me deeply. I was like, politics wasn't anymore something that it was outside. It was something that it was deeply ingrained and it was hurting people that didn't even understand the name of politics. Mm. You know, and at that point, I was like, I need to get out. And my way to get out was to, I had good marks at uni, so I applied to do my master's degree in Melbourne University. And it was a way that I could, with that offering from a good university, I could get a credit in a bank in Chile to come down and study here. Right. And that's what happened. That's what happened. So what year did you get to Melbourne University? 2007, in February. Uh, what did you think when you stepped off the plane at Melbourne Airport? I, it's a funny story. I stopped in New Zealand beforehand, and I spent 24 hours in Auckland walking around because the uh. plane stopped there. I've never left my country. I, um, well, I've traveled a couple of times outside, but close to South America. Like any person from the other side of the world, I'm really uneducated about, you know, the history of all the countries. And um, for me... Coming from there at that time, New Zealand, Australia must be the same thing. Two islands in the Pacific conquered by the same dudes must be the same, right? Mm-hmm. So I landed in New Zealand, and everything that I saw in New Zealand, I thought I was going to see in Australia. So I landed in New Zealand. It was very green, very lush. It was very chilled. Um, very little cops around, lots of parks, everything super green, super nice. And then I took the plane. I was like, I make the best decision of my life. This place is beautiful. I'm going to rock up to Australia, and it's going to be like New Zealand, but on steroids. It's going to be so green. It's going to be so lush. It's going to be so beautiful. And then we were. I take this plane, and we're flying over Australia, and the pilot goes, um, everyone that is coming to make Australia home should look down right now because we're flying over the, red, the great 
the great desert, we should go and take a look. And I looked down and I saw this rock. <laughs> <laughs> this red rock, man. There wasn't water anywhere. It wasn't, but it was flat. <laughs> it was flat and red. And as the plane was going into Melbourne, I let's remember 2007 February was a really hot summer. That's right. We were at the end of 12, three years of drought. We were in like uh, stage three water restrictions at the time. Yes. We were all about calling the neighbor because he was washing the car with too much water, you know. Yeah. Um, and when I, I came into Melbourne, Princess Park, I remember was the first thing that I saw coming down from the airport into Fitzroy. Mm. It was yellow. Right. All the grass was crunchy. <laughs> And it was uh, it was like forty degrees, man. It was twelve o'clock during the day at the end of February. It was like right. forty degrees. Yeah. I was told that Melbourne was kind of cool weather, you know. Yeah. And I landed in forty degrees in this dry as hell, and I was like, "Oh, this 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 city doesn't look modern like Sydney that I saw in the pictures, you know. Like <laughs> it's 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 a bit crunchy." And on the same day, I had classes because the same day, so I woke up to the house that I had rented in, in Fitzroy. I had a shower, and I walked to Melbourne Uni to enroll my my subjects to pay for university, to sign up for a bank account, to get a mobile phone and to yes. try to get a job and to sign a lease. That was my first year, day in Australia. I, I always say that that was the day that I, I grew up. I became an adult. Yes, you had to do that. I landed. But yeah, Melbourne yeah. was hot, was dry, um, and it didn't make, much, make much, much sense to me until it was 6 o'clock in the afternoon and started smelling the food when yes. the kitchens are firing up, you know, in Carlton? Yes, yes, yes. All the smells of, you know, Asian food and Italian food and all of these smells that, you know, Chile is not a multicultural society at all. Mm. So it's all of these smells that I never had in my life. Yes. All conveying in my nose and at the same time rocking up to Melbourne Union and seeing people from every part of the world. Yes. First question in Australia for me was, how do I refer to people of all of these races without being, without insulting them? Right. Because race wasn't a thing in my country. We're yeah. all the same race, the same culture, the yes, same language. Yes. So how long did you last at Melbourne University for? Uh, it took me two years to get my program done. Yep. And then I ran away from there as fast as I can. Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning, I didn't know because my English was pretty shit. But by the end of my two years, I realized that that was the wisest university that I could have gone into. Exactly. Um, that the idea of multiculturality was basically one table for the Thai people, one table for the Chilean people, one table for the Australian people that are liberal, one table for the Australian people that are labor, yes. one table for the Aborigines. But we never mix. No. You know? So what did you do after that? I had to keep studying because I wanted to stay in Australia and my program didn't allow me to apply for a permanent residency. So I study uh, training and assessment. In between all of this, I got a job offered by a mining company that I declined, and we got into a bit of an argument with the director. The director got a little bit angry and said, I'm going to make sure that you never are a journalist here. And I was like, that's right, mate. I'm sick of journalism anyway. And I got an apprenticeship to learn how to make pizza. An apprenticeship to make pizza. Correct, mate. And I changed you, my you, career. Telling me, you, you are telling somebody of Italian origin that you got an apprenticeship on how to make pizza. My mum yes, taught sir. me how to make pizza. You don't need an apprenticeship to make bloody pizza. Exactly, right. but when you're an immigrant in this country and you have an accent and your English is not that great, you still need a job. Yes, and, all right. And, and they call it an apprenticeship. Point, all right. Exactly. That was the way that they call it so they can pay me $12 an hour right. and work right. a lot of hours for them. But I became a pizzaiolo from there, and then from there I, I became a chef. Excellent. And I've done a 13-year career as a chef in Australia. Right. And are you, are you still working as a chef? Uh, not at the moment because COVID, but yeah. No, I but before that, before that. Yeah, I work mostly as a, I work part-time in certain kitchens, or I do consultancy work. So I help people to build up their menus and set up the operations of the kitchen, oh. rather than work as a chef full-time. Well, that's excellent. That's excellent work, because obviously you don't have to get, you don't have to sweat a lot in that situation, which is good. Oh, you got no idea, and like the amount of corn flour that you have to down your pants, you know, on a summer day. Yes. Yeah. You don't chuff your legs, you know? Yeah, I can understand with kitchen people. I don't think people under... I mean, they walk into a restaurant, they sit down. It's pre-COVID. They sit down. They, the meal's three minutes late and they start complaining. I don't think they realise how hard people work in, in, in a kitchen environment, no, they have especially no in a big restaurant. Yeah, in, in, in the small ones as well, I mean, like every restaurant implies an incredible amount of hours. So for every 
six hours that a kitchen is open, there is another six hours of work preparation that happens before that and two hours of cleaning every day. Mm. Look, in, so the last, six hours, yeah, yep. in the last few minutes, as I said, we're going to have to do a second hour later on in the I, year. I, I told think. you, man. Well, no, I told you. I said. <laughs> <laughs> now, just, 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 just to round off the program, I've only got two or three minutes. Um, when did you getting? When did you first make contact with 3CR, and what are you doing now at 3CR? All right. So I was living in front of Queensland when uh, as the girls from Completada Bailable, a Spanish-speaking program on Wednesdays at six thirty. Uh, they were covering gay marriage, and mm-hmm. they didn't have many queer friends. So they called me, and I was in front of Queensland living up there. So we were supposed to do a 10-minute phone interview, but it turns out we had a lot of chemistry. We ended up doing the entire program together with me on the phone sitting on top of a palm tree. It was pretty funny. Mm. Um, and when I came back to live in Melbourne after my divorce from North Queensland, I came down to live in Melbourne. The girls invited me to one of the shows and basically pitched me that they wanted me to be part of the team. And I've been part of that team um, until now. Completada by Lovely finished last week, but we are still with a couple of the girls producing content for that hour and trying to shape another um, another show to service the Latinx community through 3CR. Mm. And if you, I assume you've got permanent residence now? Yeah, I'm a citizen. Mate. You're a citizen? You want to? Yes, uh, mm. I vote. I do my duties. I also heard cassowaries and swam with platypus, so I yeah. stuff. All right. I'm going to ask you the most important question uh, I've ever asked any person in an interview in the last 50 years, and that is, if you're a real Melbourneian, what football team do you follow? But i got to say it. I'm a Collingwood supporter. <laughs> Look, I'm not going to be rude. I'm not going to ask you if you've got all your teeth. <laughs> no, mate. You know what? I actually picked Collingwood, and I'm going to tell you why I picked Collingwood. First, my first, my first uh, neighbourhood was Smith Street. Yes. Um, the colours in my team in Chile are black and white too. Oh, but most importantly, I was like, "What's the most white supremacist bogan uh, <laughs> team?" And they said it's Collingwood. And I was like, "Cool, I'm going to go for Collingwood." Yeah. And they're going to go white. And I was like, "Well, do you know the face that the people put when they asked me?" What's my team? And with this accent and with this brown face, I tell them that Collingwood is my team. It's the best face in the world, especially if there are a Collingwood supporter. Yeah, well, they don't mind. As long as you've got missing teeth, they don't mind. Look, it's been a pleasure (laughs) talking to you. Uh, I'd love to continue the interview in a few months' time because I'd be interested in your experiences in Australia. I'm sure the listeners are. So I'll get somebody from uh, 3CR to contact you in a few months' time and we'll do another hour because I think you've got a fascinating story to tell. But not only a fascinating story to tell, but a story which is full of hope. And all I can say is Chile's loss is Australia's gain and I'm very pleased to have been able to speak to you for the last hour. All the best. Good and I All the best, mate. Thank you for the invitation. Have a great day, mate. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.